Some of you saw this week a great quotation from G.K. Chesterton that helps introduce our continuing discussion of being rooted in the life of God, what theologians have called union with Christ, this idea that we are participants in the divine nature, that we are in Christ and Christ is in us. And Chesterton says this, how much larger your life would be if yourself could become smaller in it. How much larger your own life would be if yourself could become smaller in it. And I suspect that most of us don't suspect that one of our main ailments in daily living is just how large a space we occupy in it. And of course, in a lot of ways, it makes sense to us. And we have forces that make us want to do this, and we have our own proclivities that lead us to do this, and then we also get assaulted with flurries of frustration. 2018 has started with what I could call nothing but nothing less than a bang for us. A couple of days after Christmas, I started getting sick, which was fun. But at least it only lasted for two weeks and continues. And because I want our family to practice generosity, I was sure to make sure that Kaylor wound up with the same sickness. And just when we thought everybody was spared, then Kathy was generously donated it as well. And then thinking that he was impervious to all danger, little Ander was the last to fall this week. And that's why they're at home today. Hopefully he'll be well for tomorrow. After two weeks, I got on antibiotics. That was nice. So, and it's helped me. And then I was driving home the other day, and uh, sort of a daily ritual, my check engine light came on again. <laughs> and I thought, well, but of course it does. It's like it welcomes me. It's a, an indicator of the presence of God, always with me, a check engine light. And that was... Only after I had received a call earlier in the day telling me that our dishwasher uh, smelled like it was on fire. And of course it would. Why wouldn't it? And so we got to spend a lot of time talking to Maytag and finally someone came. And fortunately it will be fixed by next Thursday. That's awesome. But it did turn warm for a minute last week. In a week where... My pen, I had a pen, my daily driver for 10 months. My Pilot Metropolitan $12 pen that I've used every day for 12, uh, 10 months. It broke in a staff meeting. <laughs> this pen, I love this pen. But it turned warm, only to five minutes later turn like the center of hell cold in Dante's world. On Friday, going from, what, 102 to negative 42 in the space of three or four minutes. And it was on that day, that night, where our heat got to go out at supper. But fortunately, it was nighttime, and it was only negative three outside, and I got to do my favorite thing, which is crawl like a giant bear (laughs) through a tiny hole and my crawl space at night while it's freezing. 
to pretend like that guy on the side of the road when his car breaks down, you open up the hood and clang around and pretend like you did something manly. So I went under there to pretend like I was fixing it and came out a failure. So I thought, 2018 is looking good. Pets' heads are falling off, Jim Carrey said. (laughs) Here's what happens. Circumstance comes crashing in on you. And it's easy to look around sometimes and think, when everybody's sick and your body's not working and your pen's not working, your dishwasher's not working, your car's not working, your heat's not working, your life's not working. And these are, I admit, silly things. It's just an accumulation of them all at once that makes you want to do an extra amount of cussing as if you were a soldier. No offense, soldiers. But what happens is, in the middle of this, you can easily start to think, are the heavens against me? You can easily have your world shrink to the size of these problems. And it turns out, not only do the problems come and cause you to seem like you're a central actor in this whole wide world, but there's also a sinister plot against you. Leanne Payne notes it. She says, the tempter of our souls, even now, says to us, I want you, and we talked about this last week, to see yourself walking alongside yourself. I want you to gain a sentimental view of yourself as noble, or great, or tragic. I want you to gain a dramatic view of yourself as the center of all things, and then to pity yourself when you are not. Self-pity, envy, covetousness, pride are all voices of temptation in a fallen world. When we begin listening to them, we don't listen to God. We obey the other voices. You have, she says, an enemy who colludes, which is a word you hear in the news at least. I think there's a rule you have to hear it 30 times a minute. Who colludes with your circumstances and with your own indigenous ways of thinking to say nothing is working right for you and it should because you're the great king of the world. This is why it's so infuriating to be on the road and no one else realizes that you need to get where you're going. Who cares where they're going? This is why it's so frustrating not to be noticed at work. Someone else gets the credit. And no one senses how tragic it is that you're being overlooked, how hard it is that you're single, and no one cares and no one will pity you, so you have to pity yourself. Or how tragic it is that you're married and no one will pity you and you have to pity yourself. And Chesterton says, your life would get so much bigger if yourself was much smaller in it. And the Apostle Paul gives us a a resource, an inducement to a kind of thinking that will make us not presume 
that we ourselves must pity ourselves, that we ourselves must look after ourselves, that we ourselves are the center of all things. And you heard what was just read by J.D. when we read this consoling passage from Psalm 23, which people like in a time of desperation, at the time of death. It's often read at funerals and at bedsides in hospitals because it is a recalibration of what is most true of us, but what we suspect is not true at all. Namely, that we are a shepherded people. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. But when we're stuck in the center, thinking, poor me, no one will look after me. No one cares about me. When we're riveted on ourselves, we have obscured from our vision this idea that perhaps there is a a shepherd in the heavens that even a king, even a king, King David, could have such a view of that he could start to see himself as one little sheep in a great big flock who's being tended to. But see, most of us are like Homer Simpson. I just want what everybody else wants. To be treated preferentially. (laughs) But David is consoled by saying, you're my shepherd. I don't have to restore myself. You're my shepherd. I don't have to pity myself. You're my shepherd. I don't have to resource myself. You're my shepherd. I don't have to tend primarily to myself. And I actually get free when I remember it anew. And the apostle is actually urging us to the same kind of calibration of our mindset and of our heart set, which is a word we're making up. Your heart set and your mindset. This is the way that you're you're telling yourself things as they happen. This is the way that you look out at the world, what Hopkins would say your inscape is. How you're determined on the inside, which factors into how you incorporate and interpret what happens on the outside. And so Paul tells you, here's what you ought to do. Since you've been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above. Your heart set should be on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above. He says on things above twice. Not on earthly things. For you died And your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. This is the main part of this passage that I'm going to look at today. Because it's intriguing, and I think it gives us a way out from the narrowness and suffocation of being the center of our own little drama. It busts us out of that rut to realize that the world is much bigger than it appears and we are much more shepherded than we ever imagined. And so the apostle urges you to do this. Alter your heart and mindset by adjusting your gaze. That we alter our mindset. We alter what our heart is set on by what we're looking for, what we're looking at, what we're giving attention to. 
Your eyes always lead you to where you think an ultimate evaluation and help will come from. Do you know this? That's why by nature we look inward and we think, nobody's looking out for me. And we, we share our stories of woe so that people might pity us, so that they might have sympathy for us. We, we dash out quickly to get help from others. Some of us, and some of us refuse to do that altogether. And it sometimes never occurs to us that there are eyes upon us seated at the right hand of God the Father, which is this idea of Christ reigning with sovereign benevolence, with stirring compassion, with indomitable love. And Paul says, I want you to fix your eyes there because that's not where they're indigenously going to fall. Your eyes are going to naturally turn inward. Your eyes are going to naturally look at and be preoccupied with your dishwasher that's not working and your check engine light that's on and your pen that broke and the relationship that's falling apart. And you're going to think, that's the main thing of my life. The lack of approval and recognition that I'm getting, that's the main thing in my life. People thinking poor little things about me, that's the main thing in my life. And Paul says, no, 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 no. Christ is your life. Your life is bound up. Your life is bound up in this one who has been vindicated and approved and accepted and heralded by God as the one in whom life resides. And he says, if you start to fix your eyes on him and you realize you're bound up with him, your life is hidden with him, it's connected to him, you're participating with him, one of the things you'll do is you'll be able to reinterpret what's happening to you. Because this idea of being one with Christ means that the trajectory of his life is a blueprint for the trajectory of your own. So for instance... If you find yourself in a situation where lots of things are going wrong, when you start to sing with Bill Morrissey, it must have been raining the day I was born. If there's a rain cloud hanging over your head, and you look at your life and you say, what's wrong with me? Why doesn't God love me? Why isn't God with me? I thought he cared about me. Why is my life turning out like this? This is not how I thought it was going to turn out. And you look and you consider the one who's at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, whose life is connected to yours. And you say, wait, did his life ever seem like there was a rain cloud above it? Well, only every second of it. Only every second of his life could people say, hey, they didn't say, what an amazing man you are. They said, don't you have a devil? And when he was dying on a cross, they mocked his faith. Oh, yeah, if he's God's man, well, then let God come down and rescue him. Obviously, God's not with him because he wouldn't have died. Paul sees this path of suffering, of anguish, of disappointment, leading to glory, leading to vindication, leading to God saying, boom, when he raised him from the dead, this is my man, and you see, this is how it works, suffering, then glory. 
if you fix your eyes from time to time when you get discouraged on this reality that this is what Christ's life was. Man of sorrows, what a name. A man acquainted with many griefs. A man who on earth was filled with loud groans and anguish but was heard because of his reverent submission. And now He's favored by God. Now God is handing over the world to him. Now he's ruling over all of his enemies until he subdues them entirely and welcomes you refreshingly. And that's the path your life is going to take. Knox Chamberlain tells a story. He says two people, two groups of people were in the same place, but one thought they were at a resort and the other thought they were in a prison. And the people at the resort were constantly frustrated. The service here is terrible. The food is substandard. These accommodations are atrocious. They walked around frustrated, grumpy. A bunch of... Never mind. But the people who thought they were in prison thought, hey, this ain't so bad. Food here is surprisingly good. Accommodations aren't nearly so bad as we thought. And Chamlin says, when we start to get this idea, and this is part of what Paul wants you to say, that one day when Christ appears, when Christ actually returns, it's not a fairy story, it's just better than one. When he actually returns, who is your life, then you will appear with him in glory. He's not apparent now, but he will be apparent And you will be fixed. And you will be vindicated as well. Your trust will be validated. And it will be shown to have been incredibly wise. And it will be sure to be the case for you that your suffering leads to glory just as his suffering led to glory. And if you start to believe that, you'll realize, hey, glory ain't now. So why should my dishwasher work all the time? Glory ain't now. So why should I expect a full embodiment of paradise this afternoon? Count on it. The Braves are going to be terrible next baseball season. I don't know. I hope not. The Falcons will let you down. They did it yesterday. And so will your spouse, and so will your friends, and so will you yourself. But if you fix your gaze on him who is seated at the right hand of God, you realize that there's a long story here and your time here now, as hard as this is to believe and as much as you seem like a wackadoo if you believe it, your time here now is far more like being in a prison than it is like being in paradise. And if you expect it to be paradise, I can assure you constant disappointment. If you think that this is preparatory for life in the world to come, Life fully with God, being known and liking it, and not needing to hide. Being approved and healed and finally knowing who you are. Your life bound up in this Christ, then you will be able to endure. This is what the Bible teaches all over the place. It is not sexy now, but throughout the scriptures you see these guys were constantly reassuring themselves and how horrid their life was by reminding themselves that these slight and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. But you got to work for this mindset. 
Because there's nothing again, uh, around you and the voices around you that's telling you to have it. But there's plenty of trouble that will. And the Spirit is active and you can help each other to fix your gaze on this reality. And if you do it, you know, something's interesting going to happen. You see, I was one time watching a sporting event. I think I've watched like one game this year. And there was, a, there was you know, like a, a Bud Light commercial. that Sometimes they advertise beer during sporting events. And there's this new one that's, uh, that's remarkably fitting for our age because it has all the, the inanity of our times. And it depicts the king as the typical doofus male who's ridiculous and priorityless and just stupid and all he thinks about is beer. And there's this scene where a magician is before the king's court and he turns something with his wand into beer, into Bud Light. And the king says, You, sir, a true friend of the court, a true friend of the king, because he's just done a magnificent thing. He's turned something into beer. And he goes, Do it again. Turn that lamp into Bud Light. And the magician like rolls his eyes and swats his wand at the lamp and it turns into Bud Light in the form of a lamp. And he goes, ah, oh, turn that statue into Bud Light. <sighs> Bud Light. And the magician, frustrated, says, uh, sir, you, you know I can do other things. I could p- perhaps call down curses on your enemies. I could grant you immortality. And the king looks over at his right-hand man and is like, Nah, we'll just take the Bud Light. I don't want immortality. I just want beer. Dilly dilly. That's what everyone says afterwards. This inane word that's taking over the minds of stupid people. There are only no stupid expressions. There are only stupid people. Now, I'm sure that I didn't get that right, but you know what I mean. But you know this trade. It's funny. It's a commercial. I laughed. It's funny. Ha ha. But it's funny because it touches up really close to a truth. This idea that somebody would be like, nah, I don't want immortality. I'll just take beer. I don't want my birthright. I'll just take some porridge. You've heard this somewhere else before. We make some pretty ridiculous swaps. Because it's not just on beer commercials that people do that. We're in a crisis right now. Matthew Crawford describes it as a crisis where we are agnostic about what should get our attention. We don't know for sure where our attention should reside. And so we are constantly bombarded with noise, with thoughts, with commands, with possibility that keeps us from ever imagining that no matter how good everything gets, people still die. And that affects a lot about our lives. And Christ offers immortality, which actually helps you live today. Because it gives you a new perspective on how to view everything that's happening now. It becomes relative and not absolute. It becomes important, yes, but not ultimate, no. So one of the things I would urge you to do if you don't want to swap immortality for beer, think about immortality. And how you know how you can do that? Pretend like, practice pretending like you're dead. Oh, good. This is, 
This is what my counselor was telling me earlier. (laughs) Seriously, practice pretending like you're dead. Paul says, you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ and God. You've been raised from the dead. Somehow or another, when Christ died on the cross, you died with him. You're dead to sin. You have a new relationship. Like, once you die, you can't sin anymore. And he says, the power of sin has been broken from you. You're dead. And your life is now located in Christ, and he empowers you. And he's going to see you through the grave. But now, think about this. On a daily basis, there are so many things where you lose perspective, and you think... You think, I've got to do this. I've got to come through here. If I don't, something terrible is going to happen. You get so nervous. Maybe you don't go to bed. I was telling people the other day that when I went on my sabbatical almost five years ago, I was talking to Professor Scott Jones, who's one of our elders, and I was telling him in voluminous detail, that's the only kind of detail I know, about all these issues at the church that he needed to know about in my absence. I was going to be gone for four months, and he needed to know. Here's what the session needs to know about this, and this is this, and this, and here's the nuance, and here's the detail. And he said very graciously, you know, that's all really great. But I kind of just feel like, if we can't do this without you, we're, and to use the theologically correct term, we're screwed. So you've got to stop it. That's what he said. Something like that. You've got to stop it. But see, here's the thing. I thought... I can't stop because I'm being irresponsible. If I know stuff that the church needs to know, these are my people. I care about these people. If I have stuff for them and, and I don't tell somebody, I'm being irresponsible. My responsibility or disorder was acting up. And it occurred to me, you know what? These people have told me, the authorities in my life have said, take a break. And the only way I could get to the permission to take the break was to say, I'm going to pretend like I'm dead. Because if I died, I'm pretty sure I wouldn't be able to do anything for the church. I wouldn't be able to help anybody. So on this sabbatical, I'm going to pretend like I'm dead in a way. And of course, that's what you do, whether you realize it or not, when you go to bed each night. Do you know you do that? Now you're never going to go to sleep again. But the ancients, this is what they did. It's preparation. You realize, I entrust myself to God when I lose consciousness. You could get attacked by a bear. You have to trust God to keep your heart going and your body working as it should. And that's fine. He does it. You entrust yourself to him. Pretend like you're dead. When you are worried about money and you're worried about people's perceptions of you, think about, what if you were dead? What's going to happen once you're dead? Will their opinion matter? Will the fact that you just had to spend 300 extra dollars matter once you're dead? And you're in glory? Probably not so much. Well, will someone's bad opinion of you that you walked away from a conversation like, oh gosh, I can't believe I said that. What are they thinking of me? And you finally meet Christ in the eyes that you've been longing to have his evaluation say, you are mine. And it heals you to your core. You think you're going to worry that sometime, at some point, somebody misunderstood you? Practice pretending you're dead. And then, try risking some discomfort. It's the last application. Try risking some discomfort. One of the things that's really fascinating to me is that Paul says, your life is hidden with Christ. Christ 
is your life. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. He thinks something that we don't think all the time. But we are very curious to find out what are we? Who are we? What kind of people are we? And so what we do is we let ourselves be labeled in ways. It's, it's to become well-adjusted citizens. And of course, C.S. Lewis said, Christians are never, if they're following their Lord, never going to be well-adjusted. Christ was not well-adjusted to his world. You're never well-adjusted if someone calls you devil and you get killed on a tree. The Apostle Paul, under no one's categories, would be considered well-adjusted. As we follow Christ, we won't be either. But I was telling our staff the other day, thinking about the kinds of labels that we give ourselves. We, we want so badly to know, what am I? What explains me to myself? How can I inhabit this skin? And so we find out, oh, I have generalized anxiety disorder. Oh, I'm so OCD. I'm just, I'm just bipolar. I'm, I'm depressive. I'm an introvert. I'm an extrovert. I'm a foodie. I'm just a, I'm just a computer nerd. I'm just a mess. I'm just a hot mess. You like that? Never do it again, I hope. I'm a never-Trumper. I'm a Hillary hater. I'm a Republican. I'm a Democrat. We're, there's all kinds of labels in, that we apply to ourselves and to other selves. And, and, and I'm not saying those are all unhelpful, except that they are, mostly. But the problem is when you say, I'm just a hot mess. I'm just bipolar. I'm just an introvert. I'm just an extrovert. Because you know what it does? Is it limits your personhood so severely that you start to be trapped by this label that you've accepted. I was telling them as a young man how glad I was that no one told me I was introverted. That that people didn't talk like that. I was so thankful because you know what it made me do? Things that were very uncomfortable to me. Nowadays, if someone says I'm an introvert, that means I don't have to talk to anybody that I don't want to talk to. Because I don't like people. That's what we think introvert means. That's not what introvert means anyways. Read a book. <laughs> Introversion is about when you get, where you draw your strength. It's in your fortress of solitudes. It doesn't mean you can't talk to people. You can't be around people. You can't engage with people. But I can remember as a boy being so withdrawn and being so scared. Scared to talk on the phone. No people today are scared to talk on the phone. But I used to be. All people are scared to talk on the phone that I know. I was scared to go into unknown situations. I was scared to speak up. I was scared of what somebody might think of me. Terribly afraid. And so when I had a job, and I was given a job to call people that, and help problem solve at the software company, people I didn't know, or when I worked in an insurance company, calling people from New York who were going to cuss me out in ways I thought people in, only in movies talked. I didn't know. Oh, I mean, I'm an introvert. I don't have to do this. I just had to do it. So I had to screw up the courage and I had to ask God to help me. And I had to count on God to walk with me through the valley of the shadow of death. So I wouldn't be ruled by fear. And I was so glad. I was so glad as a pastor in the, the only four or five hundred million things that frightened me about being a pastor to say, you know what? Christ is with me. So I don't have to obey my fear and I don't have to obey my reluctance. I can move forward in the face of it. I can risk the discomfort and I'll find Christ liberating me as I do. All the great aspects of your faith come usually as you're enacting them. 
So if you're a sullen and withdrawn person, take some risks that make you uncomfortable to speak up when you think you should and you're not, you just don't want to. Bonhoeffer said it like this, let him who's not in community beware of their solitude. Their solitude can go sour on them. But if you're an extrovert, and I'm, by the way, I'm right in the middle, as Dave Conness has said, like Jesus. I'm, <laughs> Myers-Briggs has told me that I'm perfectly in the middle of extroversion and introversion, so there's that. But I don't care about that. And now, for the rest of the story, but what was the rest of the story? I've lost it. Yeah, 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 yeah. So if you're an extroverted type of person, you love being with people. You don't fear nothing. You're gregarious and bold and you step into situations, but you know what scares the willies out of you? Being there by yourself. And so when you get there and you experience the Avett Brothers song, will I ever know silence without mental violence? And you're saying, no, I won't. Mental violence, I can't stand this. Will you risk the discomfort of standing it and not reaching for your phone and not quickly rushing out the door to go be with somebody or calling somebody or texting somebody or Instagramming or scrolling through something so you don't have to sit there because it's possible that the discomfort for an introvert around people in hard situations and the discomfort for an extrovert in their solitude and being with themselves that these are invitations to find out that Christ has aspects of your personality to develop that Myers-Briggs can't. You know, C.S. Lewis said, my my understanding of personality has changed as, as I understood Christ. When I look at the history of tyrants, they're all monotonously alike. Every powerful man or woman who's riveted on themselves and narcissistic, they're arrogant, they're bombastic, they're uncaring, and they are monotonously all alike. It's unbelievable how many tyrannical dictators are so very similar. Small people. Truncated people. Gnarled, turned in on themselves personalities. And yet, he says, the history of the church is filled with these radiant personalities. They're all so different because what happens is as people give themselves to Christ, as they trust Christ in them and they look to Christ outside of them and they listen to his voice and not their own, they gain their personality. So there are parts of it right now. There are parts of you right now. You think, well, this is my personality. I can't do that. Well, that might be, but it might be that as you listen to Christ and not yourself, as you trust his work and not your own, as you trust him to lead you through the valley of the shadow of death and walk you through fear, you might find your personality changing. You might find this resplendent light coming out of you that other people experience. Just like we all do from all, think of all the different Christian people you know and how wonderfully different they all are and how they all show you something different about your Savior. You gotta be risking some discomfort. None of you is just a mess. None of you is just an introvert. None of you is just anxious. You're not ruled by those things. You are ruled by him who sits on the throne and who said, I'll never leave you and I like you. That's why I live in you. One of the downsides of all this cold has meant that our dog, whom I love, has been living in our house 
more than I wish, which is anything beyond one minute is more than I wish for our dog to be in our house. I think dogs should live outside. Our dog lives outside. But we do have compassion. And even dogs get cold, apparently, in this weather. So we have the dog inside and let all of her allergens destroy us. But when I let her out, she gets parched from the dry heat in the house. And when I let her out to get some water and to go out for a while, I notice that her water bowl is frozen. And so she'll lick that ice. She's licking it vigorously, trying to get some wet out of there. She's not seeing a Christmas story. She doesn't know what can happen. And it's really kind of pitiful, I think, how thirsty she is. And now she's going after this ice. Nothing's happening, though. And because there are boys at our house, for some reason we have a hammer that lives on our front porch. You probably do, too. And so I've realized, hey, you know what I can easily do to remedy this situation in most cases is I just get that hammer and I just smash the top of the ice and there's water underneath so she can drink. And when Paul tells us to set our minds on things above where Christ is, when Paul tells us that Christ is our life, to set your heart on things above, it's so that you can live here with your thirst. But you know that your thirsts are overlaid a lot with, with a thick layer of ice. And it obscures your vision, and it makes you want to trade immortality for beer. And sometimes you need a hammer like the hammer of the Word of God. The hammer that comes through prayer and solitude of attention to God to say, help me to believe this so that that ice gets shattered in your life and underneath you find refreshment that you're looking for. Because you are a shepherded people. And the Christ who's reigning over you is living in you and is acting for you. But Dallas would have said, he often won't compete for your attention. Will you give yourself to habits of rootedness? And even if you don't understand, start to wonder, why does Paul say, Christ is my life? For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Is he unwell, or is he on to something? Ask God to help you see.